put them here. Well, good morning. It really is good to see you guys here. Welcome to those of you online also. And it, it, it's always a privilege to be able to come together as a community and listen to the Word of God together. So before we go any further, let's acknowledge who the real teacher is. It's not me. So let's talk to him. And you speak to him from whatever part of the journey you're on. So. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you don't ask us to be somebody that we're not, and so wherever we are in our story, that's where we are. You know us well. You know, as the psalmist says, are coming in, are coming in and are going out. You're the Alpha, the Omega. And I thank you that in this very unique gathering that you have called together, Folks here on site and folks online, there will never be another gathering like it with every single person here together at the same time, this side of the great banquet. But we're here for a purpose, and that's for you to speak into our stuff, not speak around it, not ignore it. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would nourish me where I need to be nourished, that you would Nourish my friends where they need to be nourished. I confess in their presence, I don't have anything to say to them that will be of any value unless what I say is rooted in your word, enabled by your spirit. So speak into not our church stuff, but speak into our life stuff. Speak into our journeys. We're listening. In the name of Jesus, who is way, truth, and life. Amen. Amen. So I hold before me something that you don't see much anymore. In this technological age, one downside is you don't get invitations to parties much that you can hold. You know, they send you those little Evite. You, know, you guys know the Evite thing? And uh, somebody tried to personalize those by giving you an envelope to click on, a digital envelope, and it opens up. I don't know what the purpose of that is other than because I never have watched one of those and thought, oh, I'm opening an envelope. I, I always realize I'm watching an envelope being opened. But when I get one, it's significant. Significant uh, uh, just because it's, it's something that we love to receive, an invitation to a party or a banquet or a celebration or a wedding. And you open it up and a lot of times the, the details of the invitation reveal the, the significance of the part. Sometimes there's a fancy RSVP envelope inside. And this past week I was online looking, I was reminded of a story about some invitations that were sent out long ago. And I was trying to get the details of it. It's about a couple who had last minute canceled their wedding. And I ran into, do you know there are websites out there? If you, if, if you want a cheap wedding, you can get one that's been canceled from somebody else or a cheap honeymoon. Who knew? Uh, but I did find some of the details of the stories. This couple in Boston, Massachusetts, a number of years ago, they were both, I think, investment bankers. They were quite well, quite successful. And they were getting married and they were going to pill out all the stops. So they rented the Hyatt Regency, got everything, the top of the line food, all the greatest china, best band they could find, everything looked good. The invitations were ready to be sent out, addressed and stamped when the groom did you know what? Got cold feet and said, I can't do this. 
a heartbroken bride no longer to be, started dealing with details and canceling florists. And she went over to the Hyatt to get her money back. You see, when she and her husband-to-be had rented the place, they spared no expense. The cost of the party was going to be, in, in 2017 dollars, was going to be $25,000. They had to put 12500 down. So she went back over there to see if she could get her $12,000 back contractually. It was a no-go, and she understood. She had signed it. The maximum she could get back in return was $2,500. So she was going to lose ten grand. She says, I'm not going to do it. She had an idea. About ten years before, she had had a very strange turn of luck in the wrong direction. Here's a college-educated person was homeless for a few weeks and had actually lived in a homeless shelter for a little bit. So she put together some new invitations. And she sent invitations to this party of all parties to people at homeless shelters all over Boston. So that Saturday night came along and bag ladies were being served champagne from tuxedoed waiters. And men that you often would see sleeping on a sidewalk covered with newspaper were being served by hors d'oeuvres by waitresses, hors d'oeuvres that they had never tasted before. And these men and women from homeless shelters all over Boston danced to the best big band group in New England into the wee hours of the morning. It was a feast and a party, and can you imagine being one of those people to receive an invitation unlike anything you'd ever received before? They'd never gotten it. They'd never been to something like this. We are given a similar invitation. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14. If you don't, in just a moment you can read along. I'll start reading in verse 15, but let me give you the background. It's very important to understand the context to any passage that you're looking at in Scripture, and this is no exception. In fact, it's even more important. So this is a, a Sabbath at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, a Sabbath day in which he was invited to the home of some religious leaders, and Jesus and religious leaders that were always knocking heads because he, he called them out regarding their authenticity, their hypocrisy, their legalism, their bypassing of what God really intended. And they were always trying to trap him. In fact, they were the ones ultimately that sent him to the cross, mock trial. And he walked into this home with all these religious leaders and it was a setup and he knew it immediately. They had a man with a condition called dropsy, a bleeding condition there. He wasn't part of their group. He wouldn't have been invited to the party normally, but he was there because of Jesus healing and they wanted to put Jesus in a difficult spot saying, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do? If you heal the man, you're disobeying our laws. It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to, to work on the Sabbath. But if you don't heal the man, you're not loving him. So Jesus turned, him on, turned, turned the whole situation on its ear, turned back to them and said, if any of you would have a son or an ox who fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, would you rescue him? And he says, nobody said a word. And he healed the man. Then he continued, looked at all the guests that were there, and he had noticed they had been jostling for position at the best seats at this banquet up, up near the front. He said, don't do that. 
If you're invited to a wedding reception, sit in the lower seats and have the host come and invite you up. Because, verse 11, Luke 14, it says, whoever, will exalt himself, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So he'd spoken to the guests. The host wasn't exempt from Jesus' stinging truth-telling. He turns to the host and says, and why have you just invited people you like? Why have you just invited this particular echelon? Why don't you invite people on the highways and the byways? It's kind of the life of the party sort of speech. Just kidding. In the midst of the silence, one of the, the guests tried to break up the awkwardness. But in verse 15, when one of these at the table with him had heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So basically it's this Jesus called them out regarding the healing, called out the guests for their pride and wanting position, called out the host for only doing what was comfortable for him. And everybody's kind of in this awkward silence. So basically this guy says, hey, how about that feast we're going to be all eating at one day when at, the, at the new heaven and the new earth? Jesus says, not so fast, essentially. In other words, don't assume you're going to be there. This is what he said. Verse 16, Luke 14, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Did you notice there are two invitations there? One invitation was sent in their culture, an invitation would be given weeks in advance, kind of a save the date thing, but that's when you were supposed to say yes or no. So these guests had received that invitation, had said yes, but it was the customary because no emails, no phones and so forth. Uh, nobody really knew exactly what time all the food would be ready. So this host of the banquet sent out all of his servants to tell everybody that had said yes to the invitation weeks before, now's the time, come and get it. And these people who had initially said yes, now say no. But they all alike began to make excuses, verse 18. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master, and then the owner of the house became angry and he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, well, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus is referring to his banquet in the midst of this parable. It's a banquet that's talked about throughout scriptures, latest revelation, the wedding supper of the lamb, this, this culmination of time, this uh, the launch into what we would refer to as the new heaven and the new earth, what the scriptures refer to as that. It's a banquet talked about in the Old Testament as well, Isaiah 25 verse six. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, 
the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. If this doesn't whet your appetite, if you've been walking authentically in a fallen world where everything doesn't quite add up except for the unanswered questions that tend to pile up, and we always have this sense, this is not how it should be. That's been placed in us from our imageness, our createdness. We're all waiting anticipation for things to be made right. That's what this party is going to be. He'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. You talk about a party and it's an invitation that's been given to you and to me, to a feast. So let me make a statement. In fact, I want you to dwell on it. And to help you do that, we're just going to put it on the screens. Here it is. The gospel, the kingdom is a feast. You see this imagery throughout Scripture, that, that the gospel and the kingdom, the kingdom's not a place, it's the realm of, of Christ's rule. So when we come under the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ, which is the purpose for which we were originally intended as human beings, not for him to suffocate us, but to liberate us, not for him to stifle us, but to free us, to be fully human to the glory of God. When we began to understand that we realize this is a feast of hope. What happens at a feast? Food. Wine, music, laughter, shelter from whatever storm is outside. And that imagery is throughout Scripture regarding the gospel, and you've got an invitation to it, so do I. But we say no. Why? The feast that Jesus is referring to and the feast that Isaiah is referring to, you could, you could look at it as a twofold. A, it's the ultimate feast at the inauguration of the new heaven and the new earth. That one that's the culmination, the wedding supper of the Lamb. But there's a secondary meaning there. And the, the, the feast is available daily to you and me, a preview. Every morning when my alarm rings, I have an invitation to the feast of the gospel, to the feast of the kingdom, saying, Matt, come and eat at the table of his enoughness for who you are, what you need, what you're seeking to do and work and relationships and your journey. And every morning, we have the opportunity to accept or deny the invitation. Those of us who are followers of Jesus have already said yes to the gospel. We still get that invitation. It's not an invitation regarding our salvation and our ultimate seat at that table one day, but it is an invitation to taste His grace today. Now, let's go back to the text. Whenever you want to understand a text like this, you've got to understand it's first its original context. From that, we draw the application for our Monday mornings. The original context and meaning, what Jesus is saying is that Israel, this chosen people of God who are meant to embody the hope of God's restorative agenda in all of creation, they've rejected Messiah. They were doing it at that dinner. So Jesus tells him the story about, you know what, Israel might have rejected the invitation, but the Gentiles, they're going to get the invitation, and many of them will come. Israel, you still have the invitation, but the invitation, the guest list is going to be broadened. And again, for you and me to understand what this means for our Mondays, let's delve into it a little bit. What happened to Israel? 
Why was Jesus saying that? Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says, my people, Israel, the Jews, have committed two sins. Number one, they've forsaken me, the spring of living water, in Hebrew, maim haim, something that's nourishing, something that completes us in our humanity. Number two, they've dug their own cistern. A cistern is a water container. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So he says, this is what my people have done. They have not come to the banquet table. They've gone elsewhere to things that they thought would satisfy them at their deepest levels. It's idolatry. And you and I are idolaters as well because we're always coming up with alternative banquet tables to go to that we think will satisfy us more than the gospel. Verse 25, Jeremiah chapter 2, the same passage. He says, so don't run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry, but you said it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. I love them. So here's, here's the connection with you and me. We have an invitation every day. I've got one of these. Why do I maybe even nod, especially if you kind of go to church regularly, we tend to, we always say, well, of course I'll, I'll respond yes. But when it comes down to it, we never show up at the table that day. We never show up at the table of the gospel. Why not? The same type of idolatry. We think we've got better options. That's what was happening in this parable. What are the better options? We're very creative. In fact, Calvin, John Calvin refers to us, he says, we're all idol factories. We're constantly making idols. Today, this is my idol. This is what I think will satisfy me. Tomorrow, it might be this. In this passage, you're seeing some of that come out. There are four types of idols, basically, that are mentioned. We're going to go through them one at a time, and I'm going to, I'll name them right now. Religion, work, money, relationships. What's, what's wrong with that list? You look at that list and say, what's wrong with any of those? That doesn't seem like a bad thing. I mean, you describe somebody, they go to church regularly, they have a great job, they're quite wealthy, and they got tons of friends. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that until I'm looking at all or one of those for what only Jesus can give me. Let's go back through them one at a time. I'll call them four dinner cancellations. Where we say, Jesus, thanks for the invite, but I got something better. Here's number one, religion. When I'm going to the religion pot and turning it into an idol, what I'm doing is I'm trying to extract a righteousness from my religious goodness and impressiveness, a righteousness that actually I'm only going to be able to get at the table of, of, of Christ's grace. So it's like a substitute righteousness. It's a counterfeit righteousness. Back to the text leading up to what sets this, and this is the major impact of the passage in verse 11, Luke 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What Jesus is going after over and over, I mean, his most scathing remarks were reserved for this crowd. In fact, you go to passages like Matthew 23, 24, and 25, I guarantee you're going to find some Bible verses you're not going to put on your refrigerator. I mean, it's scathing stuff where he says you... You vipers, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs. You got your behavior doing good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. But there's a pride. And he, that's why he's saying, 
You, you're exalting yourselves. Let me tell you something, that ain't gonna work. Humble yourself in the presence of God. First Peter, chapter five, verse seven, no, chapter five, verse five. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. What do we typically do? We exalt ourselves when we are treating religion as an idol, and it's, it's, it's the alternative restaurant instead of going to the banquet. We're trying to do all the right stuff outwardly so we, and we feel proud of ourselves. Religious people can get really proud because of our works of righteousness. Now Jesus refers to this in, 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 in verse 16 as the resurrection of the righteous. So when you see, and we'll talk about this sometime in the future, but when you see the word righteous or righteousness in the New Testament, it's typically in one of two categories. What I refer to as positional righteousness, and also practical righteousness. Positional righteousness is where I'm entrusted, it's something I'm given in grace. I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've, the Christ righteousness has been imputed to you, positionally. Due to no worthiness of, of, of me or you, he gives it to us in grace. And he says, now when I look at you, Matt, I see the righteousness of my son. You say, that sounds too good to be true. That's why it's called the gospel. Then there's practical righteousness, righteous acts, righteous deeds. Are we supposed to act and behave righteously? Of course. But here's the problem, listen very carefully. When we start going, trying to do practical righteousness without first receiving positional righteousness, we engage in acts of practical righteousness in order to gain status before God so that we can take credit for it. You following? You better nod or not, because I got no more services till tomorrow night, so we can be here a while until you get that. You following this? Because this will liberate, liberate you if we get it. So often our obedience, our acts of obedience, the practical righteousness we're doing without acknowledging that we're already righteous. See, I do the acts of righteousness so that I can actually enjoy the position of righteousness that I already have. I'm under no condemnation. I'm loved immensely. I'm never going to be loved anymore. This is the way to enjoy and experience that love. But if I don't want to, as many religious people don't, I don't want to say, God, you know what? I'm going to get no thanks to the banquet. I'm going to get my own righteousness. And it caters to our pride, our ego. Richard Sisson wrote, religion caters to man's pride. Egos swell up through its liturgy. People satisfy their consciences that everything is all right in their lives when they conform to the external standards of the church. People even become haughty as they observe religious shortcomings in others. Some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life, some of the most judgmental people I've ever met in my life have been in church. Some of you, there's no question that somebody is here or online and you have ventured into a church context for the first time maybe in years because of these kind of people. Paul was delivered from it in Philippians 3. He says, I, I, actually let's bring up Philippians 3. He says, I, the, the liberation that I've experienced he says, whatever were gains to me as a religious guy that's doing this religion for my own sake of earning my righteousness, he says, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. But what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here we go, pay attention to this. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. 
That's what he'd been doing. He says, I was getting the righteousness of my own. It was a substitute righteousness. It's counterfeit. Didn't mean anything, but from keeping the rules. He says, but now that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, faith that's the positional righteousness. And it, it transformed his journey. So why do I say no to this invitation of Jesus to come to the banquet table of grace? Because you know what? I don't like humbling myself and saying, I'm going to take that righteousness that only he can bring. I'm going to get some righteousness of my own through this religion. And it's, it leads to bitterness and judgmentalness and haughtiness. That's the big impact and, and emphasis that Jesus and point he's wanting to make in this passage. But there are several more that we find in the, in the three excuses. We'll cover them real quickly. Here's the second idol, the second dinner cancellation. I'm going to call it work. And what happens in this whole notion of work becoming an idol is when I'm trying to get significance from my career that I can only get from the banquet table of Jesus. This guy, going back to the text in verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. You see what's happening there? This is a real estate agent. I got my job. Sorry, can't make the banquet. Translation, I'm going to get more significance from my job than I'll get from your banquet table, so no thank you. It's a lie, but we believe it. And the longer we believe it, the more, the bigger this, as David White refers to, he says, when you go down this, this raw end of a career pursuit, when it's for the wrong reasons and you're dying on the vine, he says, your career becomes a haunted house of insignificant successes. Oh, you're successful. But it's insignificant success. Anything wrong with work? Of course not. Work treated appropriately can be vocational fulfillment and cultural health and impact. But when I try to extract from my job, the, a, a, can I get significance from my work? Of course, but it's significance with a little s. When I try to extract from my job a significance that only the banquet table of Christ's grace, this gospel banquet, this kingdom feast, my job becomes an idol and workaholism enters the picture because I just can't work enough to feel significant enough. Here's the third one. Why don't, why, why don't we say yes to this invitation? That idol of religion, that idol of work where we're trying to get our own righteousness instead of Jesus, our own significance instead of the significance he can give us. And there's money. We'll often go down the money path say, I, I want to get security. Jesus, I'm not coming to your banquet table because I can get more security from, from my wealth than I can get from you. It's, it's ultimate security that we think we can obtain on our own. Go back to the text. Verse 19, another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So what's embedded there is something that you might not notice right away. That's two to five times more oxen than most people would need. Most people just need, needed one. The size of their property, most landowners. This guy's five times more wealthy than most people. He says, you know what? You go ahead. I've got my wealth. Anything wrong with money? Nope, until I try to extract from it the ultimate security that only Jesus can, can provide me. First Timothy chapter 6. 
Command those who are rich, verse 17, who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Is money a bad thing? No, it's the provision of God. It enables me to be generous and help shape and make my community more healthy. But if I try to, if I turn it into an idol, it will drown me with empty promises of security because I will never feel secure enough. I just need a little bit more. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. All right, here's the fourth dinner cancellation. Fourth reason that so often on our Mondays, we don't respond to Jesus' invitation to come to the gospel feast. Why? You know, Jesus, that's all right, you go ahead, because I'm going to obey some rules today so I can feel better about my own righteousness. I'm going to go to work so I can get ultimate significance that I can't get from you. I'm going to make some more money and accumulate it and get some more possessions so I can feel more secure than I'll be able to feel with you. And fourthly, relationships. I'm going to get intimacy that I can't get from you. You go back to the text, next verse, this guy says, in verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Hello, why don't you bring your wife? But there is that notion, anything wrong with relationships, marriage? Of course not. See, do you see the, 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 uh, the precariousness of all four of these? All four can be really good things until we turn them into idols that keep us away from the actual banquet table and the relationship's no exception. And it has to do with intimacy. Can we have intimacy with one another and community? Of course, and that's the, the upside of relationships. But ultimate intimacy is not gonna come from a human being, but from the God who made me. And if I don't do that, I'm gonna turn all my relationships into codependent uh, tragedies where I'm expecting from you to do for me what only God can. But if I say, you know what, Jesus, I've been ignoring this invita your invitation for way too long. I've been prideful about my religion. I place too much emphasis on work from a significant standpoint. I'll keep working, I wanna be excellent at what I do. I'll still gain significance, but not the big ass significance. I'm coming to you for that. I want to respond to your invitation. You've blessed me with money, with wealth. I'm sorry, I, I've, I've, I rely more on that than I do you. Let me be generous, but I'm coming to you for my ultimate security. I'm going to trust you. And my relationships, I want them to become more healthy. I'm going to respond to your... your your invitation for ultimate intimacy. And then out of my acceptance with you, I want to relate to the people around me in health. I'm saying yes. I'm saying yes to the invitation of Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is on? That table, the banquet table, doesn't cost anything. It's an invitation at his expense. 
Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of banquet fare. Huh. Is the gospel really good news to me? Is it good news to you? Is it a feast? Or have I not spent enough time at the table to start realizing that? Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may become impressively religious. No, listen, that you may what? Hmm? Live. The gospel is meant to enable us to live to the glory of God. And the invitation comes to us all, but it's the people that will say, I need you. I need you for righteousness and significance and security and intimacy that human beings and human endeavors can't provide. That's when things start to get beautiful. That's when a church starts to get healthy. About over 20 years ago, a gentleman named Tony Campolo spoke here at Northland and he told a story about being in Honolulu one night, having just flown in, suffering from jet lag. So he was wide awake at three in the morning, started roaming around downtown Honolulu for a place to eat. Couldn't find anything, finally ran into a diner. This little greasy spoon diner walked in, no booths, just a counter with, you know, 15 or so seats, one of those narrow little restaurants, storefronts. So he walks in, nobody else is in there. He sits down kind of in the middle on one of those swivel stools. This big guy, dirty apron, comes, leans over the counter and says, what do you have? He says, I'll have a cup of coffee and a donut. And the guy wiped his hands on his apron and grabbed a donut and put it in front of Tony. So he said, start eating the donut, drinking the coffee. Before he's done with the donut, the door opens and eight or nine provocative, boisterous prostitutes walked in. And he's sitting in the middle, one of the middle seats, so they sat on either side of him. Kind of ignored him. He's getting, he doesn't know, okay, well, do I engage in conversation, what do I do? And he's just eating his donut and he's, he's so uncomfortable he's about to leave. And then the woman next to him just says, says this to really nobody in particular. She says, you know, tomorrow's my 39th birthday. I can't believe it. And one of the other women said sarcastically, almost in a mean way, well, so what? What do you want us to do? Give you a birthday party? Get you a cake? She says, why are you having to be so mean? I'm just telling you, it's my birthday. I can't believe I'm, I got one more year in my 30s. They went on to something else. Tony stayed, waited till they left. Once they left, he asked the guy behind the bar at the counter that he had realized his name is Harry. He said, uh, hey, Harry, do these women come in every night? He said, yep, same time. He said, how about the woman next to me? He said, Agnes? Yeah, Agnes is probably the, one of the most regular. She's always here. Tony said, you know, she said tomorrow night's her tomorrow's her birthday. Why don't we throw a birthday party for her? Do a cake and decorations. Harry said, that's a great idea. Harry said, I'll do the cake. Next night, Tony showed up about 2.30, decorated the place to the nines, and then about 3.15, he said, the cook must have told somebody because he felt like every prostitute in downtown Honolulu showed up, and they were waiting there for Agnes to arrive. She walked in at 3.30, everybody said happy birthday, started singing happy birthday, she teared up, and then they brought the cake, lit up, she, started, she lost it. 
Didn't want to blow out the candles or even cut it because she'd never had a cake before. And she told Harry and uh, figured out Tony had something to do with this. Would you mind if I didn't cut it? And I said, you don't have to cut it if you don't want to. Would you mind if I, I took it home and showed my mother? I said, sure. She said, I promise I'll, be, I'll bring it right back. I'm just two houses down, two doors down. So she walks out like she's got the, the holy grail, Tony said. And everybody is stunned, silence. She was stunned first, kind of buckled, and they held her up. Now everybody else is stunned because what do you do? The birthday cake and the birthday person have both left the birthday party. <laughs> so it's dead silence. Everybody's just staring at each other. And Tony says, I don't know why I did it, but I just said, well, how about we pray? What? Everybody looked at him, pray. They said, yeah, so he began to pray. Prayed for healing for all of those women and for Agnes and for grace and restoration and forgiveness and, and completeness. Said amen, everybody's just staring at him. Harry leans over and says, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church are you a preacher at? Tony said, I'm a preacher to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry said, no, you're not. There's no such church, because if there was, I'd go. May God enable us to leave behind our idolatry and taste grace in a contagious way. And you know what? That is happening here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the gift of the gospel, the gift of this feast, the gift of what Northland is doing. And what we're about to do right now before we head back out into our lives, head back out and respond to the invitation you've given us. We want to celebrate something that you're up to through us in Costa Rica with some prostitutes down there that are finding this table of grace. Thank you for these men and women we're about to commission to go down there and enable us to enter into the celebration of the gospel right alongside them. I pray this in the name of the one who hosts the banquet. Amen and amen.